Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 9, verses 1 to 35. Well, we gather as a people needing to hear from God this morning, don't we? We are a needy people. We are not a people that have it all figured out. We aren't so brazen as to think that we once understood something about God or got excited in a church service and we got all we needed to get, right? That's not our posture now, is it? If it is, we ought to stop right now with that attitude and just repent and understand that God in His vastness is pleased to meet with us, but He is not fond of the prideful. He comes to us in our humility. The Bible says God is far from and against the prideful, but He's close to the, to the humble. And so let's come to God this morning, if we haven't already, not with flippancy, not with an eye toward excess. Let's not come to God this morning as if we're doing Him a favor just by showing up. Let's come to God this morning with immense hunger that we need to be fed spiritually from His Word. Let's come that way this morning. And I needed that check just as much as the rest of you. I'm not talking down to you. In fact, I'm talking to myself and to you as we talk upward to God and say, we're sorry for where we've treated this thing flippantly, and we need to hear from you today. We need to hear thus saith the Lord. The title of today's sermon is, There's No Time Like the Present. There's no time like the present. I'm not sure what keeps a pastor up at night more than a lack of urgency among people when it comes to spiritual things. It is the pastor's hope that he would be focused on spiritual things, and he knows how much he falls woefully short of being urgent about spiritual things, and how much more so should he then be concerned also for the flock that he has been called. 1 Peter 5, 2 says that the pastor is to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. And so these that are among us are to be shepherded. And to do soul care, to do shepherding, means to carry that burden and to give it to the Lord, and to carry that burden and give it to the Lord for you and for your soul. It is important, and I'm thankful to co-elder around other men that are like-minded. As imperfect as we are, I can't think of anything that keeps us up more at night than a lack of urgency among people with regard to spiritual things. But also, I can't think of anything that we celebrate more than when we see flickers of light and urgency amongst you God's people when it comes to spiritual things. You may think it's a small thing when you fix something in the church or when you volunteer for a ministry or when you see a need and meet a need or when you pray for something diligently and let it be known that you're praying not to showboat but to say, I really believe prayer is worthwhile. When you do something, that something is an encouragement to your elders. We make time for what's important, don't we? I mean, think about it. We emphasize what's important. We spend our resources on what we think is important. We make friendships intentionally around what we think is important. Our walk of lives reveal whether we believe much of what we say about what is important. We wish for urgency in spiritual things and intensification of spiritual things. And we don't want 
what we live like is important to in any way betray what we say is important. The reality is, we're going to see in Exodus 9 today, is that the Lord is sweet, that Christ is sweet. There's a song lyric that I sang growing up in church, and it it went something like this. It was, the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. And this is true. It's like 34th Psalm, where the believer senses that the Lord is good and says that he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that we ought to taste and see that He is good. And oughtn't we to taste and see that He's good when we gather together on the Lord's day, right? We should taste and see that He's good when we gather together on the Lord's day to take the supper like we'll do next Sunday, Lord willing, to see baptisms. The believer learns over time that an intentionality and an urgency with spiritual things is not only warranted, but it is also wonderful. As you taste and see that the Lord is good, you find exactly what you were hungry for, which is not more of excess and self-indulgence, but it is one of focus and spiritual indulgence. The opposite of those that are on the way with Christ would be those that simply are not. Those that refuse to heed the upward call of Christ. Perhaps this is you this morning, and you've gotten to this church service for one reason or another. Perhaps you are one that refuses to heed the upward call of Christ, to trust in Christ's atoning sacrifice as your only surety of heaven when you die. And if that is you today, I want to appeal to you right now and through the preaching of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and I want to appeal to you that time goes fast, and I want to argue that you will never be more right to follow Christ than you are right now today. Corinthians says that today is the day of salvation. As we often say from this pulpit, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And I want you today to be compelled, even if you're like Pilate, if you're like the prefect in the New Testament, late in Acts, where he says, Paul, would you convince me in such a short time to be a believer? I hope that in such a short time that the Lord would use these words to convince you to believe on Christ and to trust His atoning work for you alone, for your eternal destination with God. That is heaven. It is God. Now to frame our reading of God's Word today, I want to quote from Table Talk magazine, a good devotional that I would commend to you. This is March's edition of this very year on the subject of intensification from this very passage. And in fact, they quote the Puritan theologian Matthew Henry in his comments when he said, the intensification of the Lord's judgments over time with the plagues were like this. If lesser judgments do not do their work, then God will send greater judgments. God does not typically pour out the fullness of His judgment the first time He acts against sinners. And the longer we resist Him, the worse His judgments come. The longer we serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The opposite is true. The longer we resist the Lord, the worse His judgments become. They intensify. By turning from our sin early in the process of God's disciplinary judgment, we can avoid the severest forms of His anger. We imagine it will get easier to become spiritual, but it's actually the opposite. That is a trick, a deceit from the enemy. 
I want to urge you today to fan into flame what God has put in you today. And if you are an unbeliever, to receive Christ and have His Spirit guiding you from the inside. As we travel back in time 3,500 years ago and consider the intensification with each passing plague on Egypt by God as an opportunity, let us also consider our opportunity that we have right now, like the people had then, to follow the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Hear from the word of the Lord, Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 35. You're going to hear three sections. Verses 1 to 7 will be a section about the plague of livestock, and it's going to tell us about the Lord's reliability. Then you're going to hear verses 8 to 12. It's going to be about the plague of boils, and it's going to tell us about the Lord's revealing of Himself or revelation. And then thirdly, in the longer section, you're going to hear about the seventh plague of ten, the plague of hailstorm, and you're going to learn about the redeeming work of the Lord. So reliability, revealing, and redeeming for note-takers. Now hear God's word. Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, a hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And now verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field is not brought home, that is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the Lord, the word of the Lord, among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses, into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation." The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God." The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 35. First, I want to look at the seven verses in the beginning of this text. Consider them with me. You might even keep your Bible laid open. For this, we see our opportunity to follow the Lord because the Lord is reliable toward us. And we see that in this section in how He's reliable to make distinctions, how He's reliable to make distinctions at a set time, and to always do all that He says. Let's, let's investigate that in this passage. The Lord is reliable in making distinctions. In this fifth plague, it is distinctly upon not the Israelites, but the Egyptian livestock. You might say, well, well, that's not fair. But that sentiment would convey a misunderstanding of history. You see, the Egyptians had intensified their punishment of the Israelites sojourning over a 400-year period. Now they had relegated the Israelites to mere slaves. They sought to make their work harder and harder, shrink their population through forced partial birth abortions and infanticide, and kept them from worshiping their God, Yahweh, our God, according to the prescription of God's word for them, what they were supposed to do. So the Lord said through Moses, remind Pharaoh of one simple first command for me, a command that to date he hadn't obeyed. And it's very simple. Let my people go that they may worship or serve me in the manner prescribed. The command came with a promise of relenting if he obeyed 
and also of intensification of plagues, therefore, if he refused. Or we might say or. It would relent or the plagues would intensify. Now, to clarify something that could be easily misunderstood here, all of the livestock did not die, but only the ones left in the field, if you look at verse 3. The rest of the plagues had further livestock to kill, and something carried the chariots into the death trap of the parted Red Sea as plagues intensified. Whether horses or donkeys or camels or herds or flocks or whatever, livestock would die that was left in the field. Philip Ryken points it out this way. He says, in Numbers 33.4, it states that in these plagues, the Lord brought judgment on the Egyptian so-called gods. The God of Israel performed his signs and wonders in order to triumph over the gods of Egypt. The biblically-based, divinely inspired interpretation of Exodus encourages us to connect the plagues to the objects of Egyptian idolatry. That was these false gods. The symbolism of this fifth plague is especially potent because of many of Egypt's gods and goddesses that were depicted as livestock. Some Egyptians worshipped the bull. Cults dedicated the bull to the bull were common throughout Egypt. They had different gods that were dedicated to the bull. Sometimes bulls were considered to embody certain gods. The chief bull was Apis. At the temple in Memphis, priests maintained a sacred enclosure where they kept a live bull considered to be the incarnation of Apis. When the venerable bull died, he was given an elaborate burial. Archaeologists have discovered funeral niches for hundreds of these bulls near Memphis in Egypt. This was an object of their idolatry. This livestock was. So, sort of like modern Hindus... The Egyptians loved their sacred cows. In fact, they seem to have worshipped the entire family of cows. Thus, it's not surprising that when Israel later decided to rebel against God of their salvation and return to the gods of Egypt, what did they make, Exodus 32, but a golden cow? Since livestock was such an integral part of their worship, the Egyptians were devastated by God's plague on their livestock. Cattle laying dead on every farm and at every temple. Imagine it. Farmers anxiously watched their cattle get sick and grow weak to their shame. Priests saw their holy cows stagger around their sacred pens until they fell down dead. God was proving himself to the Egyptians on their own terms, exposing the cult of the cow as a false religion. Thus, the fifth plague followed the pattern. When Pharaoh refused to meet God's demand, God sent a miraculous plague that demonstrated his power over Egypt's gods. So, in quote, the Lord makes distinctions between the livestock of Israel and of Egypt. You see that in verse 4. And he does it at a set time in verse 5. His timing in verse 5. And he gives them 24 hours to repent of their sin and obey. But they did not. And time keeps ticking. And those refusing the Lord, imagine time will be there to deal with spiritual things later. Those who refuse the Lord take little time to learn about His Word and about His demands for obedience and how God wants us to worship Him together in a certain prescribed manner. And I do want to emphasize that certain prescribed manner. A quick aside, I'm going to help lead a four-week virtual study in the month of, of September on Tuesdays. It's a working lunch from 11 to 12. It is about what God prescribes for Christians in their corporate worship. It's based on a book titled, Does God Care How We Worship? by Ligon Duncan. It's a little bitty book, and you can find information about that at the Welcome Center on a piece of paper that tells you what the Google Meet link is, and any man or woman that wants to be involved in that study, if that fits your schedule on Tuesdays at lunch, get the link and jump in, grab the book online, be a part of that study. 
But one of the things that we learn in Exodus explicitly is that God does care how he is worshipped. And so we want to dig deep as a body here into how God wants us to worship. And so again, the title of the book is very simply, Does God Care How We Worship? It's a very short book with a big impact. Now, I think God is not slow in keeping his promises. I think he's right on time. But he can seem slow to us. And the Bible identifies his seeming slowness as his mercy toward us, giving us time to repent of our sin and trust more and more fully in his atoning sacrifice for us. He's merciful. I think a cross-reference might help us here. Let's keep our finger in Exodus, and let's briefly consider 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. I think these seven verses help us understand those seven verses. The Apostle Peter, nearing the end of his life, wrote this. Now, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. I love that, beloved. I like to address you that way. The Apostle thought it was good. Beloved. In both these letters, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Reminder of what? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, which we could count Moses, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, of which we could count this author, Peter, Paul. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You might say it differently. Plagues will never happen. Don't ask for God to send you a, a, a plague, right? Or don't expect God to send you a plague. I was prepping for this sermon, and, and one of the brothers said, uh, God might not be sending us a visible plague, but he has sent us preaching. He sent us the clear teaching about the plagues from the Word of God, and we ought to pay attention to that. Also, I believe that we are deeply plagued with problems in our world, and we ought to see that God is bringing salvation even through judgment in our day. But back to the text, because I think it's so helpful just to read it straightway now. This is what 2 Peter 3, 5-7 says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact when they make this argument that God looks like He's not doing anything. That the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the Word of God. Emphasis, accent on the Word of God. And, by, and that by means of these, the world then that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. Talking, of course, about the great flood and Noah's ark. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And you think to yourself, now why in the world is Peter writing this to believers? Sounds like a pretty good message for unbelievers, right? Like, this is what's going to happen if not. And I think there are reasons for this. We need to be reminded that the God of the Exodus is the God of the church. We need to be reminded that the words of the apostles and the prophets recorded in this scripture that you have is the word for the church. We need to be reminded that then, though things seem to just sort of keep happening in cycles that we will not make the error of the Buddhists and think that things aren't heading a certain direction. We won't be tempted like the Hindus to worship the creation instead of the creator. Everything that you have is God's. He made everything. God is not slow, but he is patient, 
2 Peter 3 tells us, and he is patient for the sake of our repentance, beloved. And in repentance, we find the very reliability of God who makes distinctions between his people and not his people. He does those distinctions on time, and he always does what he says he will do. The Lord is reliable. The dead, the dead livestock showed the Egyptians that the Lord is reliable. And next, we're going to see that the boils also showed them that the Lord was not only reliable, but was revealing himself to people. So look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 8, to see this second section of our sermon. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh had verified the first plague. He had sent out to make sure. He's starting to understand this is a force to be reckoned with, even though he won't bow the knee and worship the one true God. And now, this is to be done in the sight of Pharaoh. And it's going to come like fine dust over the land of Egypt, and it's going to symbolize this, this soot thrown in the air. It's going to symbolize the disease that will fall on all the people of Egypt. And it's sort of, to me, an object lesson. So I think the Lord reveals himself in these plagues, and in this plague in particular, the boils, through object lessons. And the object lessons of the Lord always make a point. His word always makes a point. And in this case, as with a lot of object lessons in Scripture, one of the things that they make a point about is the relative hardness of man's heart and so that we can get to what the remedy for that hardness is. And so let's, let's think about that, that object lesson and the point of it and it revealing the hardness of at least one man's heart. But actually, I think it's kind of an every man's heart in the sense of our, of our hardness. Let me try it using a, a different word picture, sort of an object. Think about reveal parties. I've, I've known this has become popular, reveal parties. People reveal their unborn baby, is going to be a boy or a girl, and they do it with colors of blue or pink, and it's just a big thing I'm, I'm, I'm told. I don't really understand it because I'm the species of male, but I'm told from all the females this is a big thing, so I'm trying to be relevant to all the females in the room right now. Guys, just hang on. But I'm told with the reveals that it's kind of nice to figure out with a surprise in colors exactly what that unborn baby is going to, to be. What kind of, what color of clothes do I need to get for this baby? What am I to do in order to support this, this, um, this mother and her unborn child? I know of a young couple uh, that did this over the 4th of July, and, and perhaps you know of something like these, these reveals. Well, by simple comparison, the Lord reveals himself by his word. He, he shows himself to us by his word. He speaks and things happen. They always have. Our trusting in God is largely visibly seen by others based on the attention that we give to His Word. Each of these plagues, as, a, as an object lesson, are intensifying judgment from less to greater. And it's on those distinctly who refuse the evidence that is before them about the one true God. The earth is Yahweh's, it's God's, and everything in it. His people are supposed to be allowed to worship Him always. The Lord shows His power for the purpose of hearing His name proclaimed in all the earth. And we get to be a special part of that today. That same purpose that was articulated in Exodus 9 is a purpose for us, that the Lord's name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. You know, we join today with, with hundreds of thousands of churches in the United States and exponentially more abroad, some that can meet legally and some that have to meet privately 
under the threat of their life. But we join with those churches each Lord's Day Sunday. Do you know what we do? We join them in publishing or proclaiming the very name of God. And that is the point. That's the point. In Him we find our very being, and we certainly find our purpose. Isn't that a privilege to be a part of publishing the name of God through our gathering? Isn't that enough? I mean, it's certainly the starting point for all the other blessings that are made known to us in Christ. Ligon Duncan talks about this, these boils in his sermon, this sixth plague, and I think he says something pretty helpful uh, about it, uh, that God is God. He said, His sovereignty is seen in the intensification of judgment in the plagues. These plagues become more progressively, progressively worse and worse and dangerous. And this is the last plague in the second triad, meaning one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then bam, the tenth one, the death of the firstborn. So they're intensifying. So this is, we go one, two, three, now we're going four, five, six, and we're going to enter into the last triad at the end of chapter nine. So he's, he's making that point, and that's a point worth making. And here's what he says is really, I think, really helpful. He said, it may well have indicated, the boils, it may have indicated the rapid spread of this disease by the throwing of this light dust into the air. The slightest wind would have spread it quickly, and it may have indicated that this plague is going to spread like wildfire. It may have indicated what the plague itself would look like on the skin of the Egyptians and on animals as they were affected. Perhaps lots of black splotches resembling black soot from the kilns manifested itself on the Egyptians. Or this may be God's ironic rejoinder to the oppression of Pharaoh. You see, the people of Israel knew a little bit about brick soot and kilns. They had been forced in hard labor to produce bricks. Now the soot from these kilns symbolizes God's judgment against Pharaoh. And so we may see here, again, showing the sovereignty, God's, God's sovereignty in responding to Pharaoh's own methods of oppressing the children of Israel. So kids get, get the, the visualness of this here, the object lesson. I, I think that athletes have a tendency to, to chalk their hands for their for their exercise or their sport, and then sometimes they'll throw it up in the air, just visualize that. Kids, they like object lessons, but we do too. Just imagine Moses in Pharaoh's court after one, two, three, four, five plagues over about five, six weeks, and him walking in and, and pronouncing this. I mean, this is going to happen. This is not just grandstanding where I win about 50% of my games and I lose about 50% of my games. This is actually going to happen, and it is going to be an intense plague against the people. And this object lesson is, is helpful to us to imagine the, the adequacy of God's plagues to punish these people and to point us toward, by object lesson, the total completeness of God's ability to punish those that are not His people and to bring salvation to those that are His people. Children learn, love to learn with object lessons in the Bible. And I hope, I want to urge you kids directly this morning to gobble up those Bible lessons that are taught to you uh, wherever they're taught to you, Sunday school, Bible school, in your home with your parents, and, and wherever they're taught to you, a loved one. Gobble them up like you gobble up a piece of pie at Thanksgiving. I mean, just gobble up those stories. Learn those object lessons with wide eyes and peaked ears and an open heart, listen and learn the stories of the Bible, God's Word. These plagues are word pictures and they're revelation before 
the written revelation was even ours. I mean, this is still oral tradition being passed on, and then Moses wrote it down. So every object lesson points you, young people, and points you to the Lord Jesus, every single one of them. Every story of the Bible points to the Lord Jesus. And, and children lo- love to learn, but you know what else we know by just looking around is that parents also love to teach. We, we like to tell them, don't we? We like to tell them stories. Let's tell them Bible stories, too, as well as family stories. Sometimes we get questions as pastors that are something like this. Is there any way that I can ensure the salvation of my children? Because that's a longing for us, right? Is there some sign that I can make them do, or is there some is there some, um, something I can make them say? Is there cert- just a, a certain extra biblical book I can read? And, and I believe that that's, a, a, I certainly want to value and validate that, that impulse. I see and believe the Lord is pleased to convert so many of your children. I even see fruit in some that are yet young and probably too young to take on the full rights and responsibilities of church membership. But I see it. I celebrate it with you. But to answer the question directly, there is no way to guarantee the salvation of your children. Pray and seek the Lord. Turn them to the Lord, over to the Lord. But I will tell you something similar and yet a little different. Though there's no way to guarantee the salvation of your children, I think there's a way to nearly guarantee they won't be. And that's Don't make them wise for salvation through the teaching of Scripture. Don't pray for them. Don't take them to where the saved people gather. To state it positively, we learn from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy that children are made wise for salvation, like Timothy was, and their consciences are therefore shaped by this revealed word. So teach them these stories. Tell them how they point to Christ. And don't live in the past for where you failed. Live in the present and in the future for where you can do this for your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren as the Lord gives you opportunity. Every lesson in the Bible makes a point and confirms the hardness of man's heart outside of Christ softening him. Exodus 9.12 comes sharply into view here. The magicians of Pharaoh that had satanically counterfeited earlier plagues. Now they're too broken out with skin anthrax to even enter into this battle in Pharaoh's court. We learn that in verse 11. This should have been enough evidence for Pharaoh to repent, but it was not. The Lord intensifies the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. It was his plan, as stated. But he is not doing anything to Pharaoh that Pharaoh didn't also do to himself. Pharaoh's will was bonded to rebellion against Yahweh. All this paganism and privilege, no proclamation of Yahweh's name. So with plagues 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, we have Pharaoh's heart described as in these ways. Becoming hard. Hardened by Pharaoh. Was hard. Hardened by Pharaoh. Was unyielding. And now, in 6, we almost choke on the reality that he was being hardened by the Lord. Verse 12. In fact, these final three plagues will end with a similar statement of the Lord taking responsibility for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, as Tim Chester points out in his helpful commentary. Exodus 9, to this score, is quoted in the ninth chapter of the New Testament book of Romans, foreseeing we would struggle with God's sovereignty to show mercy on some and to allow for the further hardening of others according to their reprobate will. We find the Apostle Paul writes this, 
Romans 9, 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not just? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have compassion, or I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, almost animately, the scripture says to Pharaoh, very interesting configuration of words. If you want to know how to interpret Exodus, find where it's talked about in the New Testament and take those cues from the apostles. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So Romans 9.17 is quoting Exodus 9.16. That's pretty easy to remember. And Romans finally says in this little part of Romans 9, helping us to understand Exodus 9, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. For what purpose? The purpose is that his name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Our problem with God's sovereignty, our problems with God's sovereignty are just that, they're our problems. You do not want a God that is changeable. You do not want a God that is not all-powerful. You want and you need a God that knows first to last and always ordains what is right, just like we sing, whatever our God ordains is right. I do not understand the depths of the reasoning of God's choosing, but here's what I do know. He is right. Always right. 100% right. I didn't do anything good to deserve His mercy and salvation. We only need to receive His mercy shown in the sin, penalty, paying work of Christ. His blood suffering requires no more extra suffering of us than that which following Christ will incur. Christ bought salvation for you, full stop. He bought it for you. There is nothing in you that merits Christ's free gift, or it would not be free. And so you who resonate with the sound of your Maker's voice this morning, rejoice that He wills to have mercy on your soul. Aren't you glad to know Christ? Only against the backdrop of wrath, like the plagues, do we see the light of Christ. Romans 9 teaches God unconditionally elects man to salvation, and God's election neither makes him unjust or destroys human responsibility. We are absolutely responsible for our rebel rebel wills against God, and we are responsible to worship Him joyously that He has shown mercy on us and shown Himself to us by His Word. God's object lesson here makes a point about hardening Pharaoh's heart, about the hardness of man's heart. God is not only reliable and revealing to us our state of affairs, but He is also redeeming. And that's our third point this morning. It is our longest passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 13 and running through verse 35. And so here's what we see about the redeeming work of the Lord 
in this passage. We see our opportunity to follow the Lord in the Lord's redeeming because He's patient and He's offering salvation to those who yet fear the Lord. Let's see something of His patience and His offer and our need to fear Him in this text. Look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. I mean, God is nothing if he isn't always inconsistent on point with his commands, right? Again and again, he gives Pharaoh this opportunity. He tells him, This is the, this is the, the bare bones command I have for you. Do this and live. Don't do this and don't. This is an evidence of faith if you would do it, and you won't, obviously. He's not going to do it. But this is this plague, the seventh plague of ten, this last plague of, of the three that we're talking about today, is a plague now not of livestock and not of boils, but of, of hail. And we see the Lord's redeeming work for His people and His patience all the way through this process. It's the first time is this plague of hail that lives are actually recorded as lost. You see how slow the Lord has been or, or patient and bringing capital punishment against his foes? Still disobedient as Pharaoh again, like the beginning of the first two rounds of plagues. So in 7, 8, and 9, we find the begin these three. Moses may be down near the river meeting Pharaoh amidst his worship of the Nile God. It was early in the morning again. And explicitly, God says, By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have done that by now. But yet the Lord is patient. Aren't you glad the Lord's been patient with you? He's given you time to come to a strength and to a knowledge of Him. He's given you time to come to salvation, to experience His redemption. I'm glad. I mean, I know that I know I'm to hasten the day of the Lord's return, and, and I know that it will be good in His perfect timing to return, but there's a part of me that realizes there's work to be done, that people need to hear the proclamation of the Lord, that they might respond and be redeemed. Pay regard to God's Word, Christians. Respond to God's Word. Make it the opposite pattern for you as what Pharaoh displayed, who made it a pattern to disregard God's Holy Word. It wasn't for lack of time. It wasn't for lack of opportunity. Pharaoh wasted his opportunity and wasted his time. The Egyptians had an opportunity to reckon with the power of God and join in the chorus proclaiming Yahweh in all the earth. That's what chapter 9, verse 16 says here. They could have joined in. The Lord offered salvation to any Egyptians who would hear and respond to the word of the Lord. In this case, they would get their livestock and workers out of the field and into safe stalls. To ignore this warning, this warning would be like those who ignored Noah's ark in its building, that made fun of him for all of his worship in building that ark according to God's plan. That preparation, like building an ark, would provide salvation to all those slaves and livestock that were inside. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, Exodus 9.21 says, showed no urgency and no intentionality toward this task. Their lives reflected what they actually believed, and that is that God either couldn't punish or would not punish them. text says that whoever feared the word of the Lord, interesting choice of language, whoever feared the word of the Lord paid attention to the word of the Lord and obeyed. Imperfectly, I'm sure, but with effort they sought to obey God's word. May that be a description of us. 
To put this in a church context, the Apostle Peter knew near the end of his life that he needed to give instruction to the young and fledgling church, a church now with over a 2,000-year history. And so he wrote commands for us with a purpose, commands with, with continuity and some discontinuity with the command given to Pharaoh and the command given to Moses. Listen to it this way. Second Peter talks about what Peter wrote, beginning in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. It says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off the putting off of my body will soon be, in other words, I'm going to die soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me that I'm going to die soon. Verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to recall at any time to recall these things. So how are the apostles making every effort that we would be able to recall the commands of the Lord? Answer, they were writing them down. This is the word of the Lord. This is where Christ the word is explained. Word-based worship is where we gain the doctrine and the devotion necessary to publish Yahweh's name in all the earth, rightly and holy. Peter goes on to say this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So we're talking about Scripture here. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this is where completed prophecy is written down. Those who spoke the word, the prophets and then the apostles, left us this word providing God's reliable and proving His redemption is sure. The Lord Jesus Christ is our ark of salvation, more fully than Noah's ark and more fully than the stables in the worst Egyptian hailstorm they had experienced in their 1,700-year existence to that date. The Lord is an ark of salvation to all who, to put it in Exodus 9 terms, yet fear Him in this life. 2 Peter helps us some more in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord then knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, some things, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Ah, it'll never happen. That was Sodom. That, that was the days of Noah. It won't happen. Despise authority. Live sensually. But yet God surely will do what he says. He'll do it in judgment, and he'll do it for redemption. 
It's interesting use of language that Noah preserved in the ark was a, a herald or a proclaimer of salvation. That's how, second, that's how Peter understands him. Even before the written word, the word was proclaimed or heralded by our fathers in the faith. I like the way Tim Chester says it. He said, the plagues were signs of God's judgment and salvation, both. He judged Egypt and he saved his people. He judged Egypt and he saved his people. The plagues were pointers to the cross and resurrection of Jesus to the ultimate signs of judgment and salvation. On the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment that will fall on all who are outside of him. And he, on the cross, Jesus experienced the judgment that will fall on all who are outside of him. And he has been raised as judge of the world to bring that judgment. But his cross also brings salvation to all who are in him. And his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. It is very easy to be intimidated in our culture, our culture of non-authority, our, our culture of, of sensuality pursuits alone. He writes, Biblical perspectives on marriage, sex and gender, other religions, self-denials, and so on, are not only seen as wrong, but increasingly they are seen as a deviant position. Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good, right? Isaiah. Unhealthy, unnatural, or hateful. None of us want to be thought of in that way. We shouldn't want to be thought of as, as hateful or unhealthy. But if that's the price of admission to have a biblical worldview, then that's what it is. He writes, finally, so the temptation is always there to downplay or to edit or to update Christian teaching as we speak or to simply keep our heads down and not speak at all and herald or proclaim the Lord. When you're tempted to do that, remember the plagues and remember the resurrection. When God goes head-to-head -head with the gods and ideologies of this world, there is only one winner. It may not have looked like that on the day before the plague of blood, or on Easter Sunday, Saturday, rather, before Sunday, but it became very clear the day after the final plague and the day after Easter Saturday, which is Easter Sunday. Our God is the true God, the mighty creator, the judge. He is our gracious Savior. Amen. He's so good. He's so patient in providing opportunity for us to yet fear him and pay attention to his word and be saved. But some, like Pharaoh and his servants, against all the evidence, they won't. Not all will. Sadly, some will actually give lip service to God's command, but they won't mean it. In the plague of, of hail, we, we see that. God, we see Pharaoh giving lip service to God's command, but not actually meaning it. See in verse 27, Pharaoh says, this time I have sinned. Well, what about all the other times? <laughs> Did you not sin then? This time the Lord is in the right. Well, what about all the other times? Was he not right then? This time I and my people are in the wrong. What about all the other times? Was, were you not in the wrong then? You see the selectiveness of this confession. It is important to note from passages like this that although we promote confession in our worship service, we believe in it, confession is not always necessarily repentance. We are willing to confess things, sometimes to get out of consequences, that we aren't actually willing to turn from. I want to ask you this morning, as part of the application of this, this third point, this third aspect of this text, I just want to ask you this morning, if you have something in your life that you felt guilty enough about to confess, but you, you haven't yet repented of it. You haven't turned your life pattern away from that sin. Now, there are lots of things that could be, and I don't want to take that from you. But I particularly want to say with the things that you choose to watch on the screens. 
And because of the little ones, I'll just say it like that. Because of the things you choose to watch on the screens. Have you said it, but not repented? And I want to tell you this morning, there are times for softness and there's times for directness. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Repent. 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 His slowness is not a reason for you to be presumptuous. There needs to be an urgency about your life in Christ today toward holiness and godliness today. Let this be a sermon the Lord is pleased to use today to cause you not just to give lip service to confession, but to repent deep down. You know, God is so pleased to deliver you from your sins. He's so pleased when confession is coupled with repentance to bring you out of it. He's so good to do that. But don't be presumptuous and don't give lip service like Pharaoh did. Even as a Christian, we can fall into the trap of Pharaoh of saying something to get out of consequences, but not being willing to trust that God knows better than I do and to repent of our sins. So let confession be a time for that for you. There's a there's a doctor in San Francisco. His name is Joel Cho. And he's a he's board certified in internal medicine as well as hospice and palliative medicine. And he wrote an article not too long ago titled The Secret to Dying Well. So if you want to look up the article, you can. I'm going to quote him here. He said, or he wrote, I should say, death is initially a confusing concept for most of my terminally ill patients. I haven't seen too many tears as I break the unfortunate news that a patient has a fatal disease. Instead, what is much more common is a look of bewilderment. Though everyone knows that death is inevitable, most don't know what to do with the news of a terminal diagnosis. They do not see impending death as a call to evaluate their lives and change. After the initial shock of the news, most patients keep on living the remainder of their days as they always had. I've never seen a patient reverse their philosophy of life because the end is finally near. This is anecdotal, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but this is one doctor's story. He said, I've heard some people say, I'll live however I want when I'm young, and when I have room in my life, I'll take my spiritual life seriously. He says, I'm sure this must happen, but I've never seen it with my patients. Solomon said, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Ecclesiastes 12.1 Solomon's words have proven true with nearly all the patients to whom I've broken the sad news of terminal diagnosis. Unless they'd sought their Creator before the diagnosis came, they were unlikely to seek Him after it came. And what you want, he writes, is a life marked by faithfulness. Because he said the opposite is true for those who know intimacy with and obedience to God. If a person's life is characterized by faithfulness, his death is well. 
On occasion, I've had the privilege of witnessing a life marked by what one called a long obedience in the same direction. Such a life pays its dividends when the end comes, he writes. Dr. Cho tells a story of visiting a terminally ill patient, a man whose life had been marked by such faithfulness. And Dr. Cho says that he gained permission to and did pray with this man. With his permission, he laid hands on the man and prayed for him, he describes. And then, in the first person, Dr. Cho says, I discharged him from the hospital with enough pain medication to control his symptoms on his way back home. That was many years ago now. When I see him the next time, I'm glad he won't need a doctor. Cho admits there may be no way to be completely ready for death when it comes. I have also seen believers gripped with fear and despair and doubt and anger at the end. The enemy is not passive with us, even in our fading hours. But though the manner in which Christians face death varies, I'm so thankful that Christ's grip on his people's souls never changed is on the authority of the Gospel of John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And he offers these parting words of wisdom. The best way you can prepare for death, the best way you can prepare for death is by walking faithfully with Christ one day at a time. Trust Him today as you want to trust Him at the end. Then someday, just like my patient, you'll walk into eternity with the faithful God who has led you all your life. Let's take about a minute and think about what the Lord has for us as a result of Exodus chapter 9 and the preaching of His Word today.